This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is sponsored by BT, because BT means business. BT knows that businesses come in many shapes, sizes and guises, from the person just starting out at their kitchen table to the biggest employer, which is why no matter what line of work you're in, they've got your back to help you succeed and do what you do best. No doubt connectivity is a must in Westminster, and it certainly helped us to get this episode created and distributed to you listening right now. BT already connects more than 1 million businesses and public sector organisations, offering secure and reliable connectivity. Nearly three quarters of people running a business or side hustle feel they couldn't do so without reliable broadband and mobile connectivity. That's why having connectivity you can count on is a must for business, whether it be facilitating multiple devices being connected at once or making team calls or guest Wi-Fi access for customers. BT's connectivity helps keep you and your customers happy. Whatever your business, BT's got your back. Search BT's got your back. Hello and welcome to the Red Box Politics podcast on The Times. I'm Matt Chorley. Joined today in his lovely uh, Limehouse flat by Matthew Powis, Times columnist, former sketchwriter, former TV presenter, former MP, former aide to Margaret Thatcher, and you'll hate me for saying this, uh, one of the nicest men in politics and journalism, and political journalism. I love you for saying that. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> it isn't true, but it's a nice thing to say. Now, Matthew, we're going to come to everything um, uh, during the course of our half-hour chat or so. Uh, we'll talk about Theresa May and Brexit and who's going to be the next Prime Minister. We'll talk about the fact that it's 40 years since she became uh, a Tory MP. But I do feel like we're sitting here, we're looking out on the Thames on a slightly grey day, and I feel like I must ask you about the time you tried to swim across the Thames. We're, we're looking almost at where I disembarked from. <laughs> so um, you were on the other side? Yeah. Uh, the, the, <laughs> I've always wanted to swim across the Thames. You sit there looking across it and you feel I should have swum that bit of water if I'm, I'm to, to live here. And I kept telling people I was going to do it. And they kept saying, well, go on, do it. And my 60th birthday approached and I still hadn't done it. So I, I said... All right, I will. A friend of mine is only in his 20s, said, well, do take some kind of flotation device with you. And I said, that would be cheating. He said, what about a boat <laughs> coming behind you? No, that would be cheating. Couldn't you just, like, tow a rubber ring behind you or something? And I said, that would be cheating. And he said, in that case, I'm coming with you, which is really very nice of him. And the two of us, we took a taxi under Rotherhithe Tunnel, which is just near here to the other side, to the steps that you, you can see from where we're sitting. I had read the Times, Tide Times tables, <laughs> and um, of course forgotten that we were in British summertime here and Tide tables are obviously going to be in Greenwich Mean Time. So we actually entered the water at half past three in the morning at what we thought was high tide. Uh, you, you swim at night because there's no boats. And, and it wasn't high tide, the tide was still coming in, so we, we were swept all the way up the river, all the way to, to, to Wapping, virtually past the Times offices, not quite. And uh, and luckily managed to get ashore, and that, then we had to run down a, a very big road in our underpants at four o'clock in the morning, and our <laughs> underpants were full of mud. But it was a great, <laughs> great experience. You've never been tempted to try it again, though? Oh, I will, yes. You will, yes. You will again? Yeah, not least you're not, because... You're not going to make me do it, are you? Uh, no, 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 but you, you'll come with me to see that I'm all right. No, the, 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 uh, they've passed a law now, the Thames River Authority, uh, they passed a law to make it illegal to swim in the Thames after, after my swim, so I'm determined to do it again now. 
And just because we're talking about the water, um, we should probably talk about the dog as well. You rescued a dog from the Thames. Yes. Sorry, we'll get on to politics in a minute. <laughs> it's actually... No, it's actually the... Um, it, it's the source of any success I've had in life was the dog rescue. I was working in Mrs Thatcher's office. I was her letters clerk when she was leader of the opposition, answering letters from the public. Worked late, uh, walked over Westminster Bridge about 10 o'clock at night. It was February and the river looked cold and windy and there was a little boy and girl standing by the side of the river near what was then County Hall where the Millennium Eye now is and crying and I, I said what's wrong and they said we took our dog out for a walk after telly and it's, it's jumped over the stone parapet and it's fallen in and it can't find the steps and I looked and you could see a little dog's head going round and round and the, 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 the tide was so high you couldn't find see the steps but I could see them going down so I, I was born in Africa. I had no idea how cold an English river is. Went <laughs> I just threw off my suit and jumped in. I nearly died. I mean, you can swim for about a minute in very cold water and then all your strength begins to go. But I just got back to the close to the steps and hands reached out, rescued me and the dog. Someone told, not me, someone told Mrs Thatcher. Uh, she called me in and, to her office and said, did you really rescue a dog, Matthew? And I said, yes, Mrs. Thatcher. And she said, what a stupid thing to do. <laughs> but, but she actually, she, she presented me with an award for bravery on Westminster Bridge. And the, the dog was there for the ceremony and tried to mate with her leg while she was <laughs> presenting me with my award. But uh, that's the only reason that the West Derbyshire Conservatives decided to put me onto their long list of 12, because their, their lady chairman, uh, Cheryl Gillan's mother, the late Mona Gillan, saw my name and said, oh, he rescued a dog. I'd like to shake his hand. And, and so every, that's how you got on the shortlist to become uh, an MP. Yes, the, the rest is history. Which brings us perfectly to let's move on and talk about politics then. So 40 years ago this month, and there have been lots of documentaries and reflective pieces around about how it was back in uh, May 1979 that, when Margaret Thatcher first won the general election. But presumably while... Everyone's been talking about how she did that and the, the campaign and all that sort of thing. But you were fighting your own campaign. What was it like? Why did a young man in 1979 decide he wanted to become a Tory MP? I'm afraid I, I was always a Conservative for the reason so many Conservatives, MPs and members are Conservatives. It's not out of any great love for the Conservative Party or any clear focused idea of what the Conservative Party stands for, it, it was because I was against socialism and I was against nationalisation and I, I was against a sort of creeping collectivisation that seemed to be happening in the 60s and 70s. So in those days you joined the Conservative Party to hold back the socialist tide. That was the, that was the motivation. It's sort of interesting that that doesn't seem to be happening now, that the, the reaction to Jeremy Corbyn hasn't been a rush to support the Conservative Party? No. Um, and I suppose the Brexit is a complication in that. But. It's, it's partly that I, I think socialism looks much cuddlier now than it did then, because then we were in the middle of it. We had a, a mildly socialist government and everything was going wrong. So that was the great ogre to a lot of people. We don't have that ogre any longer. It's hard to persuade people that we'd get like Venezuela if we had Jeremy Corbyn, although who knows, we, we might. So, but I don't think this generation has any vivid recollection of, of that. But it's also because I, I think the Conservative Party has, has not become a, a sort of consumer-friendly product just at the moment. People are put off. But also they weren't in 1979, and uh, 
Margaret Thatcher arrives as Prime Minister. Did you, obviously because you worked for her and you, you, you'd worked, as you were saying, as a correspondence secretary, did you feel you got to know her? Did you like her? I respected her. Um, I admired her. Like is, is a perhaps too, too touchy-feely a word for someone who was not a touchy-feely person. I didn't dislike her at all. She infused all of us in the office with um, a very clear sense of mission and purpose, and that's a great thing in a boss. And I agreed with three-quarters of what she said and disagreed with a, a quarter of it. She, she was a, a solicitous boss. She remembered that my father had had a heart attack and would always ask me how he was. But I wouldn't call her a warm or loving sort, sort of person. I think it was her effectiveness that, that I admired and also the fact that you had a voice, clarity. That's what, that's what we're lacking at the moment. You had a sense of clarity from her, where we were going, what we were going to do and why we should do it. What difference do you think it made? What was it like for her, do you think? Because, I mean, it's, it's still fairly unusual having senior women in politics now, but she must have been often the only woman in every room she went into in she, British politics. Yes, it, it, it was in many ways. It was like a, a test pad for, for something that had never been tried before. And my impression, I was only a clerk under the stairs, so to speak, but I was in her office my impression of those years in opposition was that her real opposition was not coming at that time from the Labour Party, uh, but it was coming from her own party. There was a, a substantial minority of her party, including a, a lot of her cabinet co colleagues, who didn't really think, A, that a woman could be leader of the Conservative Party, and, 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 and B, that even if, if she could, Margaret Thatcher wasn't the right woman. There was a lot of snobbery, there was a lot of public school snobbery towards her public school boys who, who thought that she was a rather common grammar school girl. And you just felt it in the air. And, and you felt under siege in Margaret Thatcher's office in opposition. And we were under siege not really from the Labour Party or the media who found her very interesting. We were under siege from, from, from the party itself. And that was back in the old days. People think the Tory party is dominated by old Etonians now. I mean, it was... It was not only full of old Etonians, but they were very pleased that they were all old. You know, that nobody tried to yes. cover it up. And if, if you weren't an old no. Etonian, that sort of counted against it you. It wasn't a matter for shame in those days, as it <laughs> is now, or ought to be. <laughs> <laughs> so you become you become a Tory MP. And what's it like arriving? I mean, essentially, the, as a building, the Houses of Parliament is, hasn't changed at all since you sort of first arrived as a Tory MP. What's it like when you become an MP? And what was it like in those days? Because I imagine a lot of the sort of induction meetings and all that sort of thing which go on now didn't go on then. There were no induction meetings. There, 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 there were no sort of... We even have paternity classes now, but you, you didn't have any kind of class about what, what, how you acted as a member of parliament. Uh, there were some hooks that you were supposed to hang your sword on. Well, nobody has swords any longer. The rules, the procedures of the House of Commons were never explained. You were supposed to find that out for yourself. You didn't know many people on... Well, I didn't. You didn't have any friends. You didn't have a gang to join. And the House of Commons itself, the Palace of Westminster, I absolutely detest it. I, I would happily see the whole lot <laughs> bulldozed down. They should, it is falling well, down. I was going to say that it, 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 it might do down. it itself quite quickly. It's a magnificent architectural achievement of creating a sense of crampness in an enormous space. <laughs> <laughs> you, all, you, well, you know the place. Like everywhere you well go, it, it feels you just pokey. feel cramped. Yeah. It's pokey. Smelly carpets and ghastly panelled walls. 
I, I don't think I ever found my feet. <laughs> and then you go into the chamber and you think this is a cockpit of the nation, serious debate going on, and people are virtually eating their sandwiches while other people are making <laughs> speeches and, and people carry on talking among themselves. It's profoundly off-putting. You said, I think in your uh, excellent book, Chance Witness, you said that being an MP feeds your vanity and starves your self-respect. You didn't, you didn't really enjoy being an MP. No. That's a comment particularly about being a backbench MP. You're, you go to your constituency, you are prince or princess in your own patch, you are Lady Bountiful, you are the vicar, the social worker, um, the ombudsman, the judge, the magistrate, uh, the charity worker, everything combined. People come to you with, with health complaints sometimes, <laughs> not knowing where to go. Uh, you press for a pedestrian crossing by an old people's home. You, the police give you the pedestrian crossing just because it's better to keep the members sweet. You're there for the opening of the, the crossing and and the matlock mercury is is there and 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 it's all lovely when you come down to westminster and you are just lower than vermin you don't know what's going on <laughs> cabinet ministers don't know your name no one ever invites you to lunch you, you and i occasionally get invited to social occasions by senior people in politics backbenchers don't not very much except of course when they're standing for the leadership i was in a lift once with keith joseph in in the house of commons going from the um principal floor, I think, right up to the top corridors in the House of Lords, committee meeting of some kind. He and I were in the lift together. There was nobody else. He thought I was the lift attendant because he was Secretary of State for <laughs> probably industry at the time or education. He said, um, fourth floor, please, to me. <laughs> and so I pressed the button for the fourth floor. And he said, what do you think about relations with the Soviet Union? Is detente a good idea, or are we just giving them an easy ride? I realised that he thought he was asking the lift attendant's views on détente, and I gave him my <laughs> views, and, and, and he his brow furrowed as we reached the fourth floor, and he said, very interesting, thank you, thank you. We must continue this conversation when I'm next in your lift. And off we went. So, I... You, you know, you can A, laugh at, at Keith being so head in the clouds he didn't know his colleagues were, but you, B, you could rather admire him for wanting the opinion you of wanted, the lift attendant. Yeah, the, sort of the, the man on the om yes. omnibus. Yeah. You were a part of a sort of gang of people who, you, know, the, you were in the Conservative Research Depart Department, which has yes. long been a sort of breeding ground of rising stars. Yeah. Who were the people that you were sort of in a gang with who then sort of rose up through the Tory party? Well, I was, I was on a desk with... Michael Dobbs, who's now in the House of Lords, and um, you may well say that I couldn't possibly <laughs> comment, has become very famous for fiction and, and television. Uh, Michael Portillo was there. Uh, we all thought Michael was very bright. I, we never thought he was left-wing or right-wing. He was just obviously very ambitious, rather good-looking. And the joke was that Michael could never pass. There was a little mirror on the stairs in Old Queen Street, which is where we were. And he could never pass that landing without just quickly glancing at himself <laughs> in the mirror. But he was, he, was a, he was a good man. Well, of course, Chris Patton was the uh, director of the, the CRD, and it was he who, uh, he who appointed me. So lots of people have gone on to greater things. But then halfway through a parliament, you decided you'd had enough. You didn't fancy yes. being an MP anymore. Yeah, I won my first election. I won the second uh, election. And halfway through to what would have been my, my third, I, I'd been there for seven years. And you'll know this just as well as I do, Matt, that it's very hard to know when you're failing in a political career. Jeremy Corbyn 
should have reached the conclusion that he'd failed about 20 years ago. But, but luck comes to you often very late, and, and sometimes you're in your 60s before preferment comes, and sometimes you do well at first and then sink. There are no gauges on which you can rate your rising or falling stock, and no way of knowing uh, when good fortune may come your way. And anyway, if you go into politics, you're a bit of a buccaneer and you, you keep thinking that one day fate will smile on me. But after seven years, I'd w- wanted to be a parliamentary private secretary, which is a kind of bag carrier to a minister. And um, Patrick Jenkin, Sir Bernard Jenkins' father, um, had offered me, and he was Secretary of State for Health and Social Security. They were all in one department. He'd offered me the job of being his PPS, And I was just off to Oxford University, to the Union, to speak, to propose the motion that this house is glad to be gay. I wasn't really out, and I wasn't really in the closet. I was one of those millions of people, probably, about whom it was was fairly clear, but but, um, nothing had ever been said. And But I decided that I really ought to put my head above the parapet and speak in this debate. So I thought, before I become Patrick's PPS... I'd better just level with the the whips. So I sent the chief whip the uh, text of the speech that I was going to make at Oxford. And the next day, Patrick Jenkin called me in and said, I'm sorry, but um, you can't be my PPS after all. The whips have had a word with me. So, uh, in fact, he he gave me what was actually very good and friendly advice – the chief whip, he said, he offered me a whiskey and, and, and he said, I'm going to tell you something I've never told anybody, I think, uh, in politics before. I haven't actually told my wife. I, I um, go to church on Sundays in my constituency and I, I say my prayers like everybody else and I'm thinking, what's he going to tell me? He said, but I don't actually believe in God. But he said, I'm I don't feel the need to stand up in in the pews and shout, I don't believe in God. It's just one of those things between me and, well, God, except I I don't believe in him. And this was how he thought I ought to deal with my homosexuality, which it was in in those days, we're talking about 1981, it was was actually quite kindly meant. So I I think I realised that I was going nowhere and I saw people who were better than me get into the cabinet and I thought, great. I saw people who were as good as me get into the cabinet. I thought, good for them. Then I began to see people who were not as good as me get into the cabinet, and I I decided to draw the lesson that I was going nowhere. So I I was offered a job taking over from Brian Walden of Weekend World, London Weekend Television. I I was to be the sort of Robin Day of Brian Walden of my my era. I had to resign from Parliament, um, and I led that programme to an early grave. (laughs) (laughs) I guess kept failing at things, basically. Yeah, but you lasted two years. It wasn't, imme- it wasn't an immediate... No, it took two years for our ratings to sink so low they didn't even register on ITV's ratings any longer. <laughs> I, suspect- I wasn't a disaster. I just wasn't brilliant. I suspect you're being overly harsh on no, yourself. No, no, I'm not. But then, uh, in 1988, you became the sketch writer for The Times. How does that come about? Well, that was my rescue, really. Because I, was at, I was 39 at this point, and my, my TV show had just been axed. I decided to be a media star and failed, decided to be prime minister and failed. I'd, I'd had a stint in the foreign office before that and decided to be ambassador in Washington and failed. 
and I was 39 and I had a mortgage to pay and Charlie Wilson who was editor of the Times then I think I think I think I'm on my 7th or 8th editor now wrote me a little note and and said would you like to write an amusing sketch for page seven, I think, of the paper of Proceedings in Parliament. I thought this is a bit of a come down. Nevertheless, I'd better take it. And it just went really well. Just like with you, actually. You know, we, <laughs> we, we, both of us started perhaps being um, valued for the occasional witty crack and, and slowly were taken more seriously. And uh, I... It's true. You sort of sneak in, yeah. under, sneak in under the under the the, the fence yes. when no one's looking, and yes. then lo and behold, you're, you just they just let you stay. Yes, that's right. <laughs> and you know, everything. Radio came back. TV came back. I wrote books, and uh, everything got better. Now, in a moment, we'll move on to the, the the sort of political outlook. But did you think how was it? Because given that you were suddenly up in the press gallery, looking down on your former colleagues as sketchwriter, only a couple of years after you'd been down in the chamber yourself. Did you find that you were more polite about them because you knew what it was like and you gave the benefit of the doubt? Or did you feel that you had to be ruder about them because people knew that some of them were your friends? I did find the clash between friendship and and the necessary impertinence for a political sketchwriter difficult to handle. I, I, I probably should have been ruder about John Major just because everyone was being rude about him but I really <laughs> liked John Major and I really personally did and do rate him you'll know this too MPs just love to be talked about even if it's uh, to be insulted to be teased to be mocked to be pilloried they just want to be talked about so I could be almost as cheeky as I liked and and, and nobody really seemed to mind I, I did also take from my time in co- the Commons a certain respect for the Constitution and, and for the way we do things in in democracy. And so I think for the Times, for a sketchwriter, you want the right balance of impertinence and respect and more by luck than judgment, I, I, I think I found it. OK, but in a moment we'll move on and we'll talk about what's actually happening in, uh, in Westminster and in Parliament uh, at the moment because there's plenty going on. We'll be back after this short break. 
it, the big question with Theresa May was, was she a closed book but she really knew what she was doing or is actually there's nothing going, you know, the lights are on but there's no one home. With a few days' reflection on her resignation speech and people dig it, picking over her legacy such as it is, what do you think is the answer to that question? I'm sure there's somebody at home, but I don't think it's a Prime Minister and I don't think she knows where she wants to go, never really knew where she wanted to go in politics. I think she wanted to be Prime Minister very much and she had a few instincts, a fairly traditional conservative instincts and, and perhaps she thought that would be enough. You were the first, Matt, well ahead of the rest of the field in, in our newspaper and I think I remember the way you posed it, that the question, is she any good? And I have slowly come to the, the conclusion that, that, that she isn't. A big problem about her was that she wouldn't recognise it, gracefully bow out of a job that she couldn't do. I don't feel any personal dislike or animus towards her, though many of the people who've worked closely with her do, because she has been so so obstinate and sometimes so rude and so uncommunicative. But I, I do feel angry with a person who obstinately clings to office when it has become plain to, to everybody that there, there isn't any good that they, that they can do any longer. It was striking. I can't, I can't quite remember when it was. It was at the end of last year or the beginning of this year where the sort of admiration that some people had for someone sticking through a grim time out of a sense of duty actually just became hanging on for the sake of it and probably becoming a, a, a roadblock to anything happening. It, it's funny that the di distinction be between resolve and stubbornness. <laughs> I mean, they're both the same quality in a way, but when, when, when uh, we think there's something to win that matters and that's winnable, we call it resolve. And when we think the person just won't recognise uh, the defeat, we, we call it stubbornness. And, and it, it became mulishness in her. You talked about how you'd known her for a long time, or at least you'd, you'd met her several times over a period of years, which is as much as anyone seems, yes, to, seems yeah. to know her. Did you at any point think this is a Prime Minister in the making? I did a little bit. Uh, I, I did when she was Home Secretary and, and seemed to manage to sail above controversy or any personal involvement in a government department that was, was plainly <laughs> absolutely useless. I, I thought perhaps she's, she is being terribly clever and she, she has the ability to draw back and stand above things and perhaps that's what you need in a prime minister but I this was always accompanied by the, the belief which I now realize was wrong that she knew what she was doing I now think that she never knew what she was doing yeah far from taking a strategic decision not to pursue the media coverage that previous home secretaries done it just turned out she just didn't like like the media yes. she wasn't very good at it so she didn't do it yeah no she just wouldn't she wouldn't and she didn't like her colleagues very much either I have been really struck by the, the fact that the, the closer people have worked with her, uh, the the more critical they, they are of her. So I think the Conservative Party in the country, lots of activists, there's still a lot of sympathy for her and they, they feel that this is a brave woman doing her best in impossible circumstances, handed an impossible job. And it was an impossible job she was handed. But anybody that's worked closely with her and has sent her notes saying, could I come and see you, and simply re received no reply, and has telephoned and, and, and just got one of her assistants and, and never managed to speak to her. Chancellor of the Exchequer himself, I, I remember, w was furious that, that she wouldn't speak to him, but as asked him to speak to um, Nick or Fee. Animosity towards her 
grows um, as as proximity has grown, and she has only herself to blame for that. It was striking. I really remember going back when she first became prime minister and going back through and speaking to some of the people who'd served in the cabinet with her. David Law's book on the coalition was quite mm. instructive. On you sort of looked up Theresa yeah. May in the in the index, and time and time again, whether it was David Cameron or Nick Clegg, they would complain about trying to have a meeting. There was an issue that they had to sort out. And they would sit across the table to one another and they would say, well, you want this and I want that, but why don't we do that? And she would just say no. So, so Nick Clegg would say, well, we could do this. And she would just say no. And that was her sort of stock. And she just would just then leave the meeting with nothing yes. having been agreed or just assuming that her position had held. And actually, if we'd have thought about it, that probably wasn't the best tactic for someone going into a negotiation with the EU. No, 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 not, not at all. And, and yet it's amazing how far... That that sort that sort of barricading yourself in can get you in politics. It's perhaps a reproach to all of us um, in politics that we allowed uh, someone who displayed those characteristics to to rise as fast as she did and to carry on for as long as she did. And when you saw her on the steps of Number Ten and giving her speech, it was a slightly odd speech, sort of running, trying to claim that setting up an inquiry to Grenfell was some sort of yeah. extraordinary achievement. And then obviously the tears at the end. What what was your overriding personal response to that? emotional um, response i'm afraid we english are dreadful at kicking at people uh, while they're doing well and then when they're down shedding crocodile tears and <laughs> and you know having a little tear with mrs may on the steps of downing street i won't go along with all of that uh, I, th- I think she was useless i think she should have gone a long time ago finally she was going i I'm sorry about the tears, but um, they were tears that she couldn't be prime minister any any longer yeah. in, in many ways. The moment she brought in the, the story about Sir Nicholas Winton and the uh, kinder transport, I thought, please, this is, you know, you do not please drag in the rescue of Jewish children from Hitler's exterminators as a, a, in, in support of your search for compromise on a deal with the European Union. Absolutely extraordinary. Totally absolutely extraordinary. I mean, we actually had an extraordinary piece by Barbara Winton yes, uh, yeah. on Red Box where she just said, it actually was very calm and measured and it wasn't overly critical of Theresa May, but just said uh, she could only really quote Nicholas Winton if she'd lived up to his responsibility, you know, what, what, what he did and her attitude to child refugees and accepting, was it 30 at one point yes, or all that sort of stuff, yes. you know, stand by your record. So then Theresa May resigns on Friday. On Sunday night, we got the European election results in which you didn't vote for the Conservatives. No, I, I didn't. And I, I would like to say, because it would sound better, that it was agonising decision to take and I couldn't decide. But I had no, no there was no question in my mind at all. I heard Theresa May, I think at the dispatch box, crow that 86% of the voters at the last election voted for a, a party that wanted to leave the European Union. And I thought, oh, so so that my, my vote Conservative at the 2017 election is now being taken as evidence that I want to leave the European Union. Well, right, I will draw the appropriate lesson from that. I don't want to leave the European Union. I think that if we do leave the European Union, we, we, I think the government should check with us first in another referendum. And the Liberal Democrats and the Greens were the only two parties who were, were say, saying that unequivocally. So I had no, no question. It does hurt if you're a member of the, the Tory tribe to put your cross in, in, in a non-Tory box. And I, I don't, don't mind saying that 
I voted, in fact, just down the road here in, in Limehouse. There was a little bit of a wrench to do it, but I didn't have any doubt. And I'm, I'm sure lots of other Conservatives didn't. We've talked much too much, I think, about all the Tories that went over to the Brexit party, and I'm sure a lot did. But I think a really substantial watch of Tories went over to the Lib Dems as well, and, and the, the Conservative Party ought to take note of that. And we've definitely seen that in the places where the Lib Dems used to be big, particularly in the southwest, mm. where they, they seem to be coming back in the local ele- council elections and in the European uh, Parliament elections. Given that you wrote, I think, last week that you were going to vote Lib Dem, did anyone from the Tory party try to get in touch with you to try and change your mind? No, no, no. No, but I think they wouldn't. Uh, they wouldn't bother. And do you think you'll go back? Well, I've just renewed my membership, okay. not least to vote against Boris Johnson. <laughs> I mean, that's a privilege that uh, is available to very few people in this country and one I'm thoroughly going to enjoy exercising. Right, well, let's move. that's a perfect way of bringing up the Tory leadership contest, which is now at the time of recording. I think it's up to 10, but it may have, while we've been sat here, other people may have entered the mm. race. Well, let's deal with Boris Johnson first. You've been on the record uh, at some length about why you think Boris Johnson is unsuited uh, to be Prime Minister. Um, Talking about how the jokes wears too thin, incompetence is not funny, policy vacuum is not funny, Mm. the way he's treated women is not funny. Has he done anything since your last substantial kicking you gave him in 2016 to persuade you to change your mind? Yes, he'd been a really useless foreign secretary. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, that was his big chance, wasn't it? To, to, to show to sh- that he was, yes. he was, a, yeah. Yeah, he was and, up and to the job. I, I, as I think I, I wrote, his only achievement in the Foreign Office has been to extend his infamy beyond these shores. He, he's now, now notorious all over the world. No, he's, yeah, I, I wasn't expecting him to be a good Foreign Secretary, but he could have been. He could have read his briefing uh, before describing Mrs. Zahari Ratcliffe as someone teaching journalists when she never did. The Foreign Office's whole position, the British position, is that she did not teach journalism in Iran. I think he just looked at his brief and saw her name and saw teach journalism and didn't bother to look in any detail and then then said, well, it was quite all right for her to teach journalism. She never did. And that was how he ended up doubling her sentence in in an Iranian jail. And so who do you think... Because all the attention now, according to the, the Times YouGov poll of Tory members, he's ahead. According to the bookies, he's ahead. I mean, it's always, obviously a dangerous place to be the front runner. Who do you think could beat Boris? Well, if we're talking about for the last two, who will then go to the Conservative membership? Who could who could beat Boris in in, in the House of Commons? I think there's a chance that Dominic Raab could take from him the the the, the crown of being the the Brexit candidate. Nobody trusts Boris, even people who are going to vote for him don't trust him. And the Brexiteers in particular, there is a deep feeling of distrust that he, he only joined the Brexit camp to further his own ambitions. And so I, I don't think he's even got it sewn up. I don't think he's even got the ERG and the hardline Brexiteers in the parliamentary party sewn up. But I expect he will be in the last two. I think that that Michael Gove has quite a good chance as a unifying candidate. Everybody remembers how persuasive he was. He almost persuaded me that Theresa May's deal was a, a, a good idea. <laughs> um, if you can sell that, you can yes, sell anything. But yes, so I, I would I would naturally warm to, towards Michael Gove. 
I'm a supporter of Rory Stewart. I, I don't think our paper has quite noticed him yet, but uh, I, I think that if, if you got Rory Stewart touring the studios and touring Conservative Association meetings uh, on the hustings, he, he, he would very fast make a lot of progress. But I don't suppose it's the likelihood that he's going to be in the last two. So is it Rory Stewart who you'd like to win? Yes. What do you think then happens? I mean, if Theresa May... Well, she wasn't handed the job. She put a name forward for it, but she 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 was given a she was dealt a tricky hand in 2016. Whoever replaces her is going to be even more difficult. What do you think happens? Do we get do we just leave with no deal in October? Is there any route through for a prime minister to to prevent that happening? I've no idea. I, I, I absolutely no. <laughs> just idea. Do it. It's the honest answer. Nobody's got a clue. Uh, no, 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 no clue at all. Uh, We'll only leave um, by either Parliament's inattention or by it being slipped through without Parliament voting on it. We won't, we'll only leave without a deal in those circumstances. And you know, the, the complicated arguments have been rehearsed about how a government intent on leaving could prorogue Parliament or whatever and just slip the thing through. I don't think they should even go near that idea. I mean, that would be almost a coup. It would be a coup against representative representative. Democracy. So I think we will reach October the 31st, um, probably without having found a way out. And I don't think we could assume that the the EU will grant us um, a further extension, although they, I suppose they, they probably will. And so if we don't want to leave without a deal, we're going to have to promise the EU a general election or a, another referendum. But uh, God knows how it will all end. I have just no idea. Nor of any of the contenders for the leadership. No, that, that, I mean, that is no one has the that least is, idea. Yes, the, all their positions are, well, we shouldn't rule out no deal, or maybe we mm. should, no deal wouldn't be a very good idea. But nobody seems yeah. to actually have a way through to, no. to prevent it. What is that. Jeremy Hunt saying now? He's going to ha- take a huge delegation, including the DUP, to renegotiate the deal. I, I don't see it. No, and I'm not sure that the problem with the renegotiation so far has been that there but weren't the enough people in the room. Yes. <laughs> If only there were more people in the room, we could show that the, yes. uh, the EU we really meant business. We yes. brought Arlene Foster with us. They, 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 the people in the room would be fighting with each other <laughs> yeah, before, exactly. before too long. The, EU, the Europeans just standing just go, back. Yeah, we'll leave you, we'll leave you to <laughs> yes, it. We'll come yes. back in an hour. Um, and do you think, just finally, given for the Tories to go down to 9% in a, in a national poll, and Nigel Farage is on the rampage again, he's absolutely furious about being back in the limelight, of course, because he was hoping to have retired for politics. Yes, as, as we know. Um, do you... <laughs> There were some people who are sort of reading the last rights of the Tory party and basically saying, you know, that there's no way back from this and the Brexit party's running riot and, and Jeremy Corbyn will be the next Prime Minister. What do you see as the sort of future of the Tory party? Is it as bleak as all that? Yes, yeah. I think there may be no way back from this. If we got a centre, centre-left leader of the Conservative Party, that could pe- keep people like me. I'm only one person, but there are millions of Conservative voters who are essentially liberal-minded, moderate people. And, and um, the Conservative Party is well on the way to losing all of us. And I don't think it's well-placed to gain the Brexiteers now, having lost their trust. So while I don't see Nigel Farage as being viable as a potential Prime Minister, and I'm not sure the Brexit Party is viable in the long term, I think it could destroy the Conservative Party as it is. And I, if you, if you ask me for a bet on whether the Conservative Party will be here in anything like its present form in the next, by, by the Christmas after next, I'd, um, 
I'd only give it a 50% chance. Wow. Do you eat? Well, we have a general election. Jeremy Corbyn wins, and the Tory parties disintegrates, and, and we get a complete realignment of of, of politics and a, a different sort of centre party. Anything is entirely possible. Yes, but um, it gives us plenty of stuff to write about. Yes, do you still enjoy? Oh, yes, it's do you very still good enjoy, for trade. <laughs> you still enjoy writing your column, and oh, I love it. Yeah. No, I, 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 the feeling that the sight of a blank laptop screen still it, it afflicts me with a momentary sense of panic. On a, on a Friday morning, but the moment I get going, I'm just happy. I mean, there's so much to say, and what a privilege one has. I'm really just like, we're all just like people on a bus yakking away with our opinions, except <laughs> and instead of being regarded as a public nuisance, we're actually, <laughs> we're actually paid for the... <laughs> That's the best description of what uh, I've ever heard. I'm exactly the same on a Friday morning, although yeah. quite often with me, it slips into Friday afternoon when after all the procrastinating of... I'll just have a cup of tea and tidy yeah. the desk, and yes. I might go for a jog, and I'll hang out the washing. And yeah. it's, it's a wonderful spur to, to uh, giving the house a good tidying, isn't it? That, you, that you've got <laughs> a column, column to write. <laughs> it suddenly makes even that preferable to. <laughs> but then, in the end, we have to sit down and get on with it. Yeah. I was just wondering. We were talking about the Tory leadership. I wonder whether, in the end, because there are so many of them, maybe the solution is that we get them to try and swim across the Thames, and whichever one, <laughs> whichever one gets across first. Well, Boris would float. <laughs> Which of the current contenders do you think would make it? You, 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 you're unique in having an insight into how difficult it would be. I, I, I don't think Michael Gove would. He doesn't would. look like a swimmer. No, no, he doesn't. Um, I'm afraid that Jeremy Hunt might get across <laughs> the other side. Uh, uh, Rory Stewart would definitely, definitely get across would. the other side. He would sort yes. of fashion in a fact, canoe he'd probably out do it underwater. Exactly. Uh, Dominic Raab probably looks like a swimmer. I think so, yes. Yeah, but he might just suddenly get very angry in the middle and splutter and... <laughs> <laughs> and, and, and inhale and drown. <laughs> I can't think. I can't remember who else is in the running now. Kit Malthouse. We don't. We no, don't. no. Well, you have the buoyancy <laughs> issue yes, there. Buoyancy. <laughs> Andrea Ledson. Mm. As a mother, I assume that she's a good swimmer. <laughs> yes, as a mother, she'll have taught her little ones to swim, <laughs> so she'll know. She'll know about life saving. <laughs> Well, on that very, very silly note, uh, I think we've probably run out of time. Uh, do subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, Acast, Spotify, wherever you listen. Sign up to Redbox at thetimes.co.uk forward slash Redbox. But for now, my huge thanks to Matthew Paris. Thank you, Matt. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk.